Hey guys, my name is Alex and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I'm working right now in a restaurant that I don't think anybody would call fancy because it's got a very sporty environment and it plays classic rock really loud all day. But every entree at this restaurant is like 16 to 22-ish dollars. It's, it's, it's semi-bouge. In case you've never worked in hospitality, a food runner is like a notch above busser in the sort of restaurant workplace hierarchy. The chef cooks a meal, he puts that dish on the expo line, which is that rack underneath the heat lamps, and the food runner aligns all of the plates for a particular table and then runs them out to that table, preferably all at once, and preferably with an ability to explain to the jersey-clad Knicks fan on his 8th IPA that he's not about to eat a chocolate cake. What this man is about to eat is a fudge cake fusion tower, topped with a scoop of vanilla ice cream, vanilla custard cream sauce ladled over it, followed by a drizzle of ham anglaise. And it's fine. I understand why the restaurant does it that way. I imagine it's because the chefs really are doing interesting, fusion-y stuff in the kitchen, and they want some credit for that, and they deserve some credit for that. But it also conveys to the guests that they, like, even though they're, they're not dressed up, even though there's classic rock blaring and sports on every TV, with a brief spell around happy hour for Fox News, and then back to sports once the sun sets, and even though there's a downright Vesuvial flood of beer coming out of 180 taps. Despite all of that, you can get quality, fancy-sounding ingredients that when you put them together, make for a very quality, refined, borderline artistic meal. And that's a great feeling to convey to a guest. I'm glad that people can come here and feel that they're getting something special. I just, it's, I just feel like I'm wearing a tuxedo to a porn shoot every time I find myself dripping with beer and ketchup, and also explaining to a shit-faced college student that the dessert he cannot taste is drizzled in a sauce I cannot pronounce. And maybe this isn't the most gracious transition into my conversation with today's guest, but Meg Gardner is an award-winning thriller writer. Most recently, she's been at work on a series of thrillers called Unsub, which stands for Unidentified Subject. To give you an idea of how that series premise works, you would use the word unsub to describe the Zodiac Killer. Someone who pulled off a bunch of crimes, was never identified, and so the first book of the series, which is called Unsub, is inspired by the question of what would happen if uh, one of these monolithic, f mythic figures of American crime who was never caught, what if, you know, that cold case turned hot again 25 years later? It's a fantastic series, and the reason that I mentioned the creme anglaise at the restaurant is because Meg Gardner's fiction, it prepares a kind of literary equivalent to a, a rich, sweet, enticing, fulfilling meal, but it's all accessible. You can wear your hair down, you can put on a jersey, and sit in a booth with your legs up on the cushions, but something so well-crafted, so carefully and artistically crafted, that yes, you might notice a drizzle of creme anglaise, but you can trust Meg Gardner to refer to it as custard. And given that she writes thrillers specifically, but, you know, genre novels at all, you might think that, okay, well, 
momentum and emotional engagement and propulsiveness, those are the natural characteristics of a genre novel, and here I am celebrating her for providing the services that one ought to provide. But there is kind of a spectrum here. I, for instance, am one of the many, many fans of the thriller genre who will say that Thomas Harris's Hannibal trilogy, and yes, let's call it a trilogy, is among the, the greatest works of art ever to enter the genre. Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, and Hannibal. That being said, those books are not for beginners, and even if you are like a very seasoned reader of thrillers, they might not be for you. Thomas Harris invokes forensic procedures and instruments without explaining exactly what they do, even though technically there's enough context information so that you can deduce the, this, the purpose of this uh, procedure. But when he does that, there is a sense of like, he is prompting the reader to come to him. There is this whole spectrum of accessibility within the thriller genre, both in terms of the technical things that are invoked, the, the emotional availability of what's going on, the, the brutality of what's being depicted. Meg Gardner's work strikes me as unique in the arena of thrillers in that she explores violence and psychopathy and depravity, these things that we're all consumed by because we see it in the news all the time. We know that in our daily lives we are susceptible to it, but she does not revel in these things. And by the way, it is not immoral or wrong for an artist to revel in that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's incredibly principled or ethical to make sure that if you're going to depict violence, you're going to depict it in a way that is not fun, that is brutal, that is maybe even gratuitous for artful reasons or the reasons of social realism. One of the great creative influences in my life is uh, Michael Silverblatt, the host of KCRW's Bookworm. And Michael Silverblatt says that the reason he doesn't read many thrillers is because so many characters are killed, but there's only one funeral. And he identifies as such a softy that he wants to he wants a few pages to mourn the death of every character who gets the axe. And I mention his position there, not because Meg Gardner rolls out a funeral scene for every character that dies, but there is in her work a kind of compassion that you don't generally see in the thriller genre. These books are brutal and they're haunting, but the way in which her novels are haunted, it's kind of like the very old-school sense of the word. Her surviving characters are followed by the accumulating ghosts of victims and all of the attendant feelings of, like, survivor's guilt, resentment, shame, remorse. And there's real empathy in her ability to depict that. And by extension, you know, if one of her serial killers is saying that he is compelled to commit his murders because of astrology and the position of the moon, or when another killer is, is using this kind of crypto-biblical language and saying he's he is a legion, he's many people in one, and he's drawing eyeballs on his palms and doing some weird mime shit. Obviously these dudes are batshit fucking crazy, but nowhere in Meg Gardner's narratives will you find a note of condescension about the killer's motivations. And in that respect, it's weird, but it's totally in keeping with her authorial sensibility, Meg Gardner shows the same kind of empathy and compassion and just kind of dignity to her monstrous villains as she does to her very human, vulnerable protagonists. When you listen to one of those interviews where she's got the elbow room to sort of expound on something, it almost sounds like you're talking more to an architect of fiction rather than the more common sort of writer, and forgive the pun, the gardener type of writer. The gardener's approach to writing fiction, I think it's George R. R. Martin who most often says this, but different writers have different words for the same thing. Pantser is another version of it. A gardener plants the seeds of characters and drama and then just waters it until something grows, and then you go back into the, you know, for the next draft and you hack away all of the 
weeds or the vine. I don't know how to go farther with this floral metaphor. Maybe it's her legal background, but Gardner is the storyteller who won't simply explain to you a three-act structure. She will tell you about, like, the sort of narrative alley-oops that need to take place within that structure. The timing with which, in the third act, a sort, a sort of dramatic echo of the first act ought to be had. There's something jazzy about it. And since she's going for the utmost momentum in her prose, there's also something jazzy about the short sentences and the short paragraphs. Gardner's latest novel, which came out this week, is Heat 2. And it is exactly what it sounds like. Meg Gardner is collaborating here with uh, the filmmaker Michael Mann, who wrote and directed Heat, starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer. It came out in December of 1995, and it has since become a monolith in American crime stories. And Michael Mann had a lot more story to tell within that universe of Heat than he could even cram into that very propulsive three-hour runtime. And now, almost 30 years later, he is collaborating with Meg Gardner to tell a story that functions basically as both a prequel and a sequel to the movie. There's a storyline that takes place in the late 1980s. There's a storyline set in the year 2000. There's a storyline set in the year 2000. I considered telling myself I had to watch the movie first, but it started to feel like homework, and then I was putting it off, and then I just dove into the book, and it works. It takes a couple pages to get you situated with all of the names, and may it might be convenient for you to jump into this book with IMDb open so that you can compare the character names to the actors who represented them. And the reason I wanted to have Meg Gardner on the show to discuss the new novel is because this book is, from the perspective of craft, absolutely fascinating. Probably the most interesting piece of fiction I have read this year, with the possible exception of Cormac McCarthy's forthcoming novel, which is a holy shit kind of weird thing that we are going to discuss at great length uh, later in the year. What makes Heat so fascinating is because it, it brings and it braids together the sensibilities of Meg Gardner, who is a person who for decades now has been telling stories entirely through language, and Michael Mann, who has spent several decades telling stories pretty much entirely through images. Obviously, the moving pictures have sound these days. So yes, there's language in a screenplay and the actors are reading lines, but when you write a screenplay, I don't think I'd have to talk to a screenwriter about this, because a filmmaker, like the only people who are reading the screenplay, conceivably, conventionally, are the people who are involved in bringing a vision to life. So the actors are going to read this as a blueprint for what they say, gaffers are going to read it for a blueprint of how they gaff, but if you are at all interested in the mechanics of storytelling, it is legitimately fascinating to see how those sensibilities alternate, at, sometimes from page to page, how sometimes they clash, and how sometimes they harmonize. To say that it's fascinating might sound like I'm skirting the question of whether I liked it or not. I can tell you that I love, really seriously, passionately adore, roughly the first 150 pages, which involve a romance in Las Vegas and uh, Vincent a detective named Vincent Hanna, which is Al Pacino's character in the movie. He is investigating and pursuing a band of home invaders slash murderers. And if that sounds like it's way off the map of what you would expect from a, a prequel sequel to Heat, that's because this book goes in directions you would not expect. There is a heist in Mexico whose execution on the page is exciting and I think that scene runs about 50 pages. Plus there's a, a catastrophic shit show aftermath that kept me planted in my chair and reading way longer than I expected. But when you take that sort of novella length section of that Mexico heist, the execution is great, the aftermath is great, but the buildup is notably off track and it's because you kind of need the images. It's absolutely fascinating. I will say that there's a big chunk of the drama set in the year 
2000, and I think just before it. It's following Val Kilmer's character from the movie. His name is Chris, and that section is pretty techy. And I have this thing with espionage or spycraft stories that involve high tech. It's kind of the same thing that I have with period pieces that take place in the 1800s. I think it's a defense mechanism. I just check out emotionally because I want to spare myself the embarrassment of having to be really confused. Like, oh, what is a magistrate? But the last hundred pages of Heat 2 bring us back to the most interesting part of the story, I think, apart from the little romance in the beginning, which is magnificent, it is an incredibly well-crafted, well-executed thriller. I strongly recommend it, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are already interested in the differences of these mediums, what constitutes good writing, what constitutes good filmmaking, and do we, consciously or unconsciously, bring certain biases and expectations to those storytellers, biases and expectations that might become clearer to us when we see a novelist and a filmmaker working together. Apologies, incidentally, if the sound is not great in this introduction. I am recording from a cavernous apartment that is not my own. Also, I did not have my podcasting microphone with me for this phone call, so it's going to sound like any other Zoom chat in which you have participated. And my emphatic thanks, of course, to Meg Gardner for joining me on the show. Here it is, our conversation about the novel Heat 2. When I received Heat 2 in the mail, even though I was excited for it, I had a nat- what I think is a culturally ingrained skepticism about what I was embarking on. And I was familiar with your work, and I just thought it was a weird pairing. And I didn't understand why. And then slowly I started to think your work is so granular. And there's a crime and, or a killer's sort of oeuvre, his body of work. And then we see it, and then the protagonists go away. They learn more details, and then they come back to it and it fleshes itself out. And it's a constant combing and untangling of one narrative. Whereas when I think of heat, I think of go here, go there, sprawling, storytelling, it's constantly moving around. So I was thinking um, where you tend to center on a particular issue, collaborating with a very expansive storyteller. But I really, really loved it. And it was not at all what I was expecting it to be. I thought maybe this hefty 600 page tome was gonna be about one spectacular heist, but it travels the world. It's It's got so many remarkable set pieces. Apart from the possible tensions that may have arisen in your collaboration with Michael Mann between sort of a, and I hope this doesn't sound judgmental, I really love what you do, the sort of that keyhole storytelling where you take a particular instance and you comb through it and you try to understand the psychology of the perpetrators versus an expansive kind of let's go, go, go storyteller, but also the more inherent one of you both have full careers in your respective mediums. I would imagine his storytelling reflexes are inherently visual and yours are inherently linguistic. And I'm wondering about those two kinds of tensions. Um, how did they emerge? If that's not too huge a question. <laughs> not at all. This is, this is a great perspective and a great uh, set of questions. So where to dive in? Uh, maybe by starting with the large-scale point that you've made that telling stories on the page through a novel or short story and telling a story in a visual medium on on the stage or the screen, those are related but different disciplines and methods. So you need to, as a writer, you approach the story in different ways. You have to. And I mean, yes, I've written more than a dozen novels. Uh, Michael is an extremely accomplished 
writer as well. And all his all his work before this has been for for the screen, television, or um, or film. He wanted for a long time to write Heat Two, which is um, to be clear, it's a standalone thriller that that is a sequel and a prequel to Heat. So it, uh, if anybody is confused, it does not novelize the film, which is uh, one of my favorite films ever, my favorite heist film by a thousand miles, but. The the movie is a sl- is a slice of life. It takes place in a very concentrated period of time, just over a f- period of a few weeks, which also um, aligns with a lot of my books. That my books uh, may have a uh, be primarily written from the point of view of uh, just a few people, a protagonist or the antagonist, but they also tend to be concentrated in time, which uh, which uh, focuses the suspense and the tension. But inevitably, novelists and um, directors present point of view in a different way. In in a film, so often uh, the point of view is the camera. We as an audience see what the camera sees. And the director is behind that, the cinematographer, the editors are all behind that moving it around, but the camera is the point of view. In a novel, uh, in contemporary fiction, usually uh, the point of view is uh, through a character's eyes. And in a novel, you can uh, be in the character's head with interior monologue, with uh, literally expressing what they see as they turn, what they hear as they walk into a room. And so that is a, a different method of immersing uh, the audience in the story. So when Michael and I got together, uh, we had to learn to merge uh, those two various ways of uh, seeing and telling a story. And honestly, that's one reason when he decided to, he he had the idea for Heat 2 for a long time. And he recognized that his experience was all in film and that he had never written a novel. So after he read unsub my book he um he reached out we have the same literary agent so he reached out and uh, we started talking about how we could we could collaborate and um hopefully our strengths and experience would complement the others and we could create something that on the page that uh, was um a whole that was greater than the sum of its parts and uh, i hope we accomplished that the exact position of the book doesn't come to mind, but there was a line in the most recent unsub novel where you say of the character, he's a profiler of killers and he's been consulted in a a string of murders and you write, his hair was cut too short to ever let down a period. He was a profiler of killers or he captured killers. And that is exactly the kind of, that's a gift that you have obviously for being able to characterize someone so succinctly and so poetically, but it's also a gift that a filmmaker just does not have. Whereas by the same token, you don't have, you know, the luxury of just being able to present us with a close-up of someone with bags under their eyes, you know, to communicate that they're tired. Um, you, you guys do have different luxuries. And there were chapters in the book where, like, in, for instance, there is when they're scoping out a heist that's going to take place in, um, in the 80s, in, in about the middle part of the book, there were, there were parts where I was like, oh, my God, I cannot... I can't get the layout of this building in my mind. But then when I went over it, it was just like two paragraphs. And when I read it more carefully, 
and I would pause, I could imagine how you would shoot it as a filmmaker. And I was like, okay, here's a little section where it's all filmmaker. And then my favorite part of the book is I think the most novelistic, it's a little romance story in Las Vegas in the beginning, which is, I don't I wouldn't, I can't say unfilmable, but the charm of it, I don't think, could oh, be communicated <laughs> on screen. Um, was there a give and take maybe in scenes where you would say, you know what, let's defer to the cinematic sensibility here or let's defer to the novelistic sensibility here? We never expressed it so, um, so flatly like that. Okay. I, um, in, in my own work, I've, I've tried uh, to create, for lack of a better word, a, a, a cinematic sense. And certainly when there is any kind of physical action on the page, because you need to have the reader be able to see it in their mind as clearly as possible. Um, to, to see the colors, to see the, the, the movement, to, to figure out where the light is coming from and how it's uh, affecting everything. So I have always tried to imbue my work on the page with that. Michael is known for being not only a um, propulsive storyteller in his films, but for the incredible atmosphere he creates for the 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 drenching of the colors in uh in, you know the, the palette mm -hmm. uh in in all his films for the the sound for both music soundtrack and literally the sound design uh say of uh hundreds of uh high-powered rounds from a rifle hitting a police car in a in the canyons of downtown los angeles and i was aware that in a film all that happens simultaneously. That's that's an advantage for a filmmaker is that uh, it can it can land on the audience in multiple ways simultaneously. That if you see it, you hear it. Uh, sometimes it resonates, you know, it rumbles in your chest. The emotional um, impact flows through you as well. I recently saw Heat uh, at the Tribeca Film Festival, a new print of it, and uh, there was a, there were enough much, you know, the people in their 20s in the audience who had never, never, I mean, it was a pack with mega fans, but it was really became clear at a very quiet turning point in the movie that plenty of the audience had no idea what was coming and they literally gasped. It was just a, a total, uh, un, you know, uncontrollable urge on them when the, when the plot suddenly turned. So all that happens in an instant in the film. You can't do that on the page because you can't have, you don't have, uh, you know, those all, that whole multiple stream of, of, uh, of, of sensory intake going on. So you have to figure out how to replicate that in words when, when words are what you've got, how do you make sure that the, that the, uh, that the visuals are clear. And I'm glad you did get it. <laughs> In that scene that you were reading, I really worked worked on that to try to make it as clear as possible because oh, I was scoping out of the motel. Yes, uh, so that you trying to trying to describe a a derelict motel so that the so that the readers will see this how a, how this score is gonna is going to go down. As uh, I tried to use those kind of visuals, make sure you have uh, you describe things visually on every single page, but to replicate the effect that Michael gets on the screen, uh, you try to figure out how can 
how do you uh, how do you work the language? Uh, how do you work the dialogue? Uh, so that what's the what's the rhythm of each character's speech? How do you uh, bring out their character through the way you describe how they move and how they talk and how they think? Uh, when when you go into an action sequence, uh, will the, the will the the language become more terse and staccato as uh, the tension uh, ramps up. Will you, when you go back into, uh, like you said, the the romance near the start of the book, will you be able to to paint it in uh, more impressionistic tones, like a little bit more melodic in the way you use the language? So you try to to uh, to trans uh, translate what you would see on the screen. Then you use all your writer tricks to to make sure that the pace goes the way you want it to, that everything moves in the story uh, at at the right at the right speed, uh, and you build up suspense and tension and uh, just pull the readers along. You know, you've, you've spoken about Hitchcock and in particular how Hitchcock was so great at explaining how suspense works and he could break it down into like a formula. And um, I'd be happy if you could reiterate that formula. But another thing I, I've noted about Hitchcock is famously and much to the chagrin of certain actors, he would say, he wouldn't say, give me your best performance. He would say, look here, look there, do this. Don't worry about coherence. I will assemble it into something. And I know people differ about this, but I feel that remove, that emotional remove in Hitchcock movie. And I think that that emotional remove is what allows him to be so crafty. He's such a remarkable craft person of suspense and of audience manipulation because he's not emotionally invested. He's never prompted to overindulge with a, with a monologue. He doesn't surrender the camera, the scene to an actor ever. And I'm wondering if you felt new reserves of craftiness given that you did not conjure this this core cast actually i'd say it was the opposite oh because it's not yours uh, yeah. it's not mine but these characters the core cast who continue from who return from uh, from the movie these characters are not only well known to the audience who has watched heat but they are extremely close and precious to Michael, that he's known these people since long before the movie was ever um, released. So he he knows them, he cares about them. And I felt a responsibility to get to know them and understand them the way he does, because it was a privilege and a weight to expand their world. And the way that I did it would need to honor uh, the core uh, emotional and psychological truth of who these people are. And of course, as a writer, we do think of them as real people. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to, to, bring, uh, to bring their uh, other parts of their life as fully to realization as I possibly could. And I needed to really get to know who they were and talk to Michael about his understanding of, of who they were and where they came from. And uh, one of the delights of, of, of starting to draft the novel was to find out that for the movie, he had written biographies of the major characters. And it was, uh, it was about 30 pages of material that was not in the film. And he didn't intend for it to be in the film, he had given it to the actors so they could read about the background of the people that they were portraying and that, that would help them round out their performances. 
So you find out where Hannah grew up in Western Illinois, desperate to escape the cornfields and the, the small life and how he you know, enlisted in the Marines to, to, to get out of there. How Neil McCauley was abandoned as a child, essentially, and put into foster care and what it was like for him you know, in fifth grade, wearing Goodwill clothes to class instead of tennis shoes and jeans. Chris, you find out Chris's uh, dad was a was an 18-year-old GI who uh, who got posted to Germany and Im- immediately got on the autobahn and tried to drive as fast as possible and got killed before he was even born and so his mother ended up you know as a as a go-go dancer at a biker bar. That was all very interesting and we use it in we use all those um, all that background material in the novel to uh, to show how the characters became who they are why they do what they do in some cases. I'm trying not to be a, not to give away any spoilers here and uh, right. how it affects them and where it That's where tricky. it takes them. Yeah, that does make more sense. As soon as you mentioned that this is not your property and that yeah, there's a generation now of film buffs for whom the heat is a kind of holy grail of crime cinema. And I noticed, particularly with um, the recent death of James Caan, it, it falls in line with a um, a, a, a resurgent appreciation of thief which kind of fell off the radar for a really long time. So Michael Mann's movies are very, um, they're, in the, they're in the water supply now. You've spoken about wanting to always make sure that you're kind of a step ahead of the reader, that you're, you can still surprise them. And when I read the unsub novels, if ever there's an occasion where I think I kind of know where it's going, I am always reminded that it is because you have manipulated me into thinking that I know where it is going. So I have that Meg Gardner sensibility of trusted hands, a trusted storyteller. I know she's going to give me that. She's going to throw me for the loop, a bait and switch kind of thing, not in a, in a tricky, chintzy way. but And then there's a very different way in which I trust Michael Mann as a storyteller, which is, and I think one of the fundamental differences between a novelist and a filmmaker is money. He is accountable for a hundred million dollar production. And when that is the case, it is just a masterful presentation of a conventional narrative. We've kind of seen this before, but never as well. I, I imagine studios are were always breathing down his neck. Make sure you give, you know, you tie up all these bows very neatly, whereas an author can sort of let things flow a little more emotionally, naturally. All throughout reading Heat, there would be a moment where I thought it was gonna go the way I expected, and I and I would wonder whose hands are, are more crafting this scene? Meg Gardner manipulating me into thinking I know where it's going or Michael Mann, who's going to do a great job of giving me what I think I'm about to get. And so great that I'm not going to be upset <laughs> that I got it. Um, yeah, I, I was reading this and I was thinking, am I, do I want to be surprised as in a thriller or do I want a rip-roaring execution of something that's cozy and familiar? Did that factor into this story? We never put it in those terms. So this is, again, a really interesting question. And uh, yeah, Michael makes uh, extremely high-level artistic commercial films. Uh, and I, there is nothing wrong with that. And I would say I write commercial fiction and I don't, I don't strive to pander to the audience. I, I, I do care about my readership and I write thrillers because I have loved the genre since I was a kid. It's what I want to write, stories about people who have some kind of chaos or evil crashed into their world, disrupt everything. Um, 
threaten their their family, their community, uh, perhaps the world, and uh, find themselves the, the the people who need to decide that they will try to do something about it, either because that's their job or uh, their their quest. And uh, my job as an artist is to put them to the test. To, uh, to to send them through hell uh, in the most entertaining way possible. <laughs> so, so that uh, at the end, when they confront this, uh, the forces of antagonism or even evil, the, they find their backs up against the wall. You know, they're uh, out of room to run. They've, they're out of ammunition, perhaps, out of ideas, uh, running out of blood. And they need to find one final way to rise to the occasion if they can. I love uh, writing stories like that. Um, I would say Michael and I both have a strong dedication to story structure. And uh, Michael's gotten that through decades of experience uh, writing for television and film. Everything from you know Starsky and Hutch to Ali, <laughs> that uh, you have to you have to pull, put the story put the story uh, together and do it in a way that leads uh, the audience the way you want them to go from from beginning to an end that ideally is is some is surprising yet inevitable. The, the, the first time you watch it or read it, you you gasp, and the second time, as you, then you sit back and you think, I did not see that coming, except. Oh yeah. yeah, now that I think about it, yeah. The, yeah, the best kind of story I, I think rewards a second viewing or reading, where right. you realize the the seeds were there the whole time. And excuse me for making notes; it's just that you were connecting no, please, exactly. No, please, fascinating. To the no, and I don't want to go ahead. I don't want to get ahead of. Uh, I don't want to let a few of your questions get away from 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 us that that that, that I haven't answered yet. But I would say one thing about moving from film to uh, a novel is that in a movie, if you're going to set a battle in medieval China or outer space, the studio is going to say, well, how much is that going to cost? Right. And uh, in a novel, it costs absolutely nothing. You can uh, you can put in anything you your imagination can conjure, and it, uh, it the only uh, the only requirement is that it it powers the story and the characters and the emotional experience you're giving the audience. Way back, maybe ten minutes ago, you asked me about suspense and Hitchcock. Yes. Did you yes. want me to go back to that? Sure. Sure. Okay, so I, I don't remember exactly what I what I had said in the um, about suspense, except for millennia, the concept of of suspense has been Aristotelian. That suspense requires you create suspense by creating a looming threat and doubt as to possible outcome. The audience uh, is worried about what will happen to the characters if things go wrong. Will the threat be realized or will the characters uh, resolve or escape the threat? So that's uh, you, you keep you keep a threat looming. And relatedly, that's what Hitchcock talked about. There's a difference between su surprise and suspense. Surprise would be two characters uh, walk into a cafe, sit down at a, at a table, chit chat for five minutes, and then a, a bomb beneath the table explodes. The audience is surprised. 
but uh, there was no buildup, no emotional interest in anything that came before that, before the surprise. Suspense would be opening the scene with uh, someone walking into the restaurant with a briefcase that is ticking and seeing them slide it underneath the table and then slink out the back door and then have the two characters come in and sit down. At that point, the audience knows of a looming threat. They feel dread apprehension, uh, anxiety, anticipation, wondering what's going to happen. They, they're, they're hoping the characters will realize it, a waiter will come along and kick the thing or something, and everybody will be rushed out of the uh, out of the, the restaurant. But they feel suspense at that point because they know something is uh, something dreadful is looming and they are powerless to stop it. They're they're waiting to see if the characters can. Right. Uh, the, the, the gap between what the characters know about their situation with the audience knows about their situation. And on that note of you and Michael Mann being somewhat similar, um, I noticed two two things, maybe these are a little flighty, but I was thinking like, God, what did Meg Gardner's stories and Michael Mann's have in common? And you were talking about where they end up. But the first one I was was thinking is, um, you write so powerfully of home invasion and particularly you write about it in the Unsub series, the violation of a private space. And I realized that's what a heist is. The violation of a, of a private space. So I, you guys had that in common. And also I noticed one of the motifs in your work and in his is characters who have allowed their profession to eclipse the self. Um, mm-hmm. They are their jobs. And the character arc is following their job to a kind of Rubicon where they have to impose self and, you know, take off the badge, do the human thing. Don't want to give things away, but your characters come to that brick wall in Heat 2. And it does seem like a meeting point of sensibilities. It doesn't seem like one author dictated to the other where this is going. It didn't seem like one was muscling the other out. And I get a sense that with a novelist and with a filmmaker, my understanding of the rigorous two to four months on set is that, yeah, it's your life. And with a novel, I wonder, are you, do you struggle with what Caitlin Hendricks struggles with in the Ed Subseries of taking off the badge at the door? so to speak, as a, as a novelist and going in. <laughs> Good question. So to speak, Caitlin Hendricks in the NSEP novel starts out as a uh, police detective and then uh, moves to the FBI where she hunts serial predators. So when uh, she tries to take off the badge, it's, it's for, uh, it's for, her mental self-preservation because she's really out that she's, she's really out there doing right. this for, for, for real. For me, of course, uh, I love playing within my own imagination, you know, researching and figuring out how on earth I could turn, uh, turn anything into, uh, into high stakes drama. So I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about plot twists. Uh, I wake up in the morning thinking about it. I stare out the windows thinking about it when, uh, when my family is, uh, is uh, trying to ask me to pass the, you know, pass the chicken at dinner or whatever. I, I will say that I, I have the luxury of, of having it all be in my imagination. <laughs> I don't actually have to go out on the street and uh, um, put on a badge and try to uh, try to bring a killer to justice. So it's uh, it's not quite as high stakes as the characters in the novel. But um, yes, in uh, in in Heat Two, uh, a lot of the characters do face come face to face with the consequences of of who they are and what they've done and how they've become. Uh, the people that uh, others see and where they whether they want to continue living 
the way they have been. But as Michael always said about the movie, that this is, he never thought of it just as a, as a heist movie. He never did. And he still does not. Didn't even want to categorize it as crime. He thinks it's a drama about um, people who take scores and those who uh, try to stop them. It's about the people and uh, who are dedicated to their jobs, but also how that affects the rest of their life, their families, uh, everything, uh, their, their health, whatever. So uh, I tried to make sure that uh, that's also in, in the novel. Thank you.